Across the UK, online and on DAB. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. The Big Chief with a badge, a cattle prod and a head on a stick. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It is another sparkling week in the Independent Republic, but the new month hasn't exactly got off to a great start. Prime Minister Theresa May is now winning bets for her special advisers by getting specific words into her answers at PMQs. And she's giving over £1 billion away to get her Brexit deal through in certain Labour constituencies. The Labour Party, meanwhile, is still tearing itself apart over their anti-Semitism problem that they keep saying they don't have. And the ISIS bride and her husband are sorry for making the mistake, their words, of joining the terrorist death cult. The good news is they want to live in Holland. Well, I say let the Dutch take them, because uh, we certainly don't want them. This morning, though, there is something that is far more important than all of that, and it is a proper emergency and a proper crisis. It is, of course, the terrible, awful toll of violence and death plaguing our streets and causing our young people to murder each other. This past weekend has got to go down as one of the worst, as two teenagers appear to have been knifed to death in brutally random attacks. Uh, it does no, it's simply no longer any good to claim that the problem is the realm of the drug gangs uh, of our inner cities to maintain that only bad kids are involved in the killing. These latest tragedies have caused one former police chief to call this a national crisis, and I don't think he is in any way mistaken. Can there be anything more important for the government to fix? And can they even fix it? We want to hear your ideas this morning because so far nobody seems to know how to stop this awful toll going on. 0344 499 1000 is the number to call us on. Coming up a little later on, we'll find out why you pick a partner because their life expectancy matches yours, why we need to teach our children more languages, and we'll get the latest on Storm Freya, which has hit some parts of the country pretty badly indeed. 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. When you see uh, the front pages of the newspapers this morning, uh, the shocking scale of youth crime is revealed, says the Daily Mail, a knife to the heart of Britain uh, with a picture of one of the latest, uh, or two of the latest victims, Jodie Chesney uh, and Yusuf Mackey. He in Manchester, she in uh, Essex, a part of East London near Romford. Knife point robberies up 50% and uh, children with stab wounds double in five years. Now, we have been watching this death toll rise and rise and rise. We have watched more and more people being murdered over the course of the last 12 months than we've ever seen before in knife attacks. We have sort of accepted it, it seems to me, and yet done really very, very little about it. The government doesn't seem to know what to do about it. Nobody seems to be very sure. I've already put a tweet out this morning asking for, for some ideas. A lot of you are saying that we need to step up uh, the penalties. We need to put people more in prison uh, than we need to let them back out again. I don't know what the answer is. We're going to try and find out from you this morning what ideas we can come up with because we need to do something because it would be one of your kids that this happens to next. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Let's talk to Barry Mizzen. Uh, he's an anti knife crime campaigner. He's the father of Jimmy Mizzen, who was a 16-year-old boy stabbed to death in Lee in South London in 2008. Barry, a very good uh, morning to you. Welcome. Morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us, Barry. I mean, um, we've been talking about this subject for a long time now. I feel as though, for certainly the last 12 months, every week or so, we've brought it up on the radio. We've had another conversation because there's been another stabbing, and it's only ever really highlighted when a particularly young person gets stabbed, like the 14-year-old boy uh, who was on the scooter recently, or when, you know, there seems to be a flurry of deaths over the course of a few days. What is the problem here? 
Well, it's, I think it's taken an awful turn at the moment. It's almost a bit of the random attacks. We really don't know. Obviously, you've got to wait till we get the, uh, the the details in due course. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, absolutely. I think everybody's running around it almost like headless chickens. What can we do? Um, you know, I'm all, I'm all for the longer term and you know picking kids up if they're, they're in pupil referral units. Is there issues there? Let's look in, get into their lives early on. But Mike, I think the only thing we can do in the very short term is to take the gloves off and let the police do their job. Yeah. It's being far too politicised. What they can, what they cannot do. And I'll give you an example, Mike. The, the domestic violence murders in London were running at about 200 a year a few years ago. Mm. The police then really applied themselves into that, and it now stands about 100 a year now. Shocking figures, I know, but that's half what it was. Right. So we can do something with, with short-term, really heavy policing. Uh, we and when you say really heavy policing, I mean, what did they do with domestic violence that changed it? Well, there was things like uh, cameras and see, so there's different issues. So you, you'll be wearing body cameras or, or recording uh, conversations, etc. Obviously, it's going to be different. The actual details of this, but it, it, you, people need to be. I do believe that stop and search. And I know it is so political. But if the kids down the road think they're going to get pulled up, they're going to get searched, maybe that'll make a difference. We're talking short term. We have to stop the bloodlust. It's absolutely ridiculous at the moment. Well, it really is. But I would also question the uh, the sort of availability uh, of the attitudes that these kids seem to have. Because if a kid is willing to pull a knife and plunge it into somebody's body, which, after all, is quite a difficult thing to do. You can't, you know, it's not something that you are trained to do. None of these kids are trained to, 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 to stab people, you know, but they're willing to do that, knowing what they know about what the consequences are. Are they really going to care about the police getting heavy with them? Listen, they might not be trained, but I do believe this, this is learned behaviour. Just the way people are behaving, as you say, the attitude, couldn't care, etc. Yeah. Now, some of these things go wrong. I'm not going to generalise completely. There will be a, um, you know, people that don't follow this, this line. But when young people are displaying certain tendencies, what are we actually doing? Are we just banging them in a, in a pupil referral and leave it there? Are we getting involved in their life? What is going on in your life? Is there anything we can actually do in your life? And, and really apply ourselves rather than just wait until something terrible happens is happening you know, at, at the moment. So rather than just leave it, apply ourselves. Why are you being excluded from school? Why are you carrying that knife? Why are you doing this? What more can we do? And I think for, for all, the, all the services and you, you'll get all this joined up thinking, et cetera, but to make a determined effort get into the lives of young people who are troubled. Yeah, we we do hear this a lot, Barry. And, yeah, and I speak to a lot of campaigners who say that they go into the communities and they can make a difference by just being there, having a youth centre and all of this. I, you know, I'm, I'm not convinced that that's necessarily the answer. I mean, I'm not against it, Barry. But what I'm saying is, is that, you know, I never had that when I was growing up. I didn't know a lot of people that had much going on in terms of youth centres and all of that. We didn't go around knifing each other. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely, and I, I disagree about the lack of facilities. I mean, people keep forgetting about the, the uniformed organisations. There is a lot out there for young people, should they want it. So yeah. I think we're making excuses. My big worry, Mike, is another uh, tranche of money will be put up there. We're going to put X million pounds into this, as though that has solved the problem. Yeah. It's almost like it's a short-term answer politician. We've just put £200 million into this, therefore the problem's going to go away. And we know it doesn't. Right. You know, is, is the work that's going on, is, is the is the evidence-based, what the, the money's going to? Um, and I do wonder if for all of us there, if we want the police to do their job, they need information, they need evidence, mm. and that sits within the communities. What are each one of us prepared to put forward to allow the police to do what they do? Um, and just say for the, for the welfare of the kids, 
back to date, there are going to be children stabbed in London. They're being stabbed every single day. Yeah. Fortunately, there are not that many murders uh, in comparison to the amount of stabbings. But it does seem to be getting worse and worse, and we're sitting back blaming each other, wringing our hands, and rather than playing. Yeah, ourselves. and as I said, I don't, I don't think the answer is, oh, let's get, you know, open some more youth clubs. I really think it's gone way beyond that, right? But some statistics I'm reading in the papers this morning, the number of knife killers under the age of 18 leapt by 77% between 2016 and 2018, from 26 offenders to 46. You know, that may sound like a relatively small number, but how about this? You know, a breakdown of age-related data from 21 police forces shows the proportion of youths committing knife crime robberies has increased by 50% uh, from 656 offences to nearly 1,000 in 2018. Uh, You know, knives are being used for rape and sexual assault. You know, I mean, obviously, there's no way we can stop them getting their hands on knives because it's very easy to just take one out of the kitchen drawer. But there is, I mean, I just find it astonishing um, that these kids are somehow thinking that this is the way forward, you know? Are we are we maybe excluding kids from school too quickly and too easily? Well, I think they certainly got to be looked at there. And I think the other thing to, to, to consider here is people come to you and say, well, we need to give them 10, 20 years for carrying a knife. It does not work as a deterrent. These young people are not thinking rationally and logically. They really don't care, some of them. Yeah, how did they become like that? What did we miss along the way? Yeah. What can we now do? How can we identify the young kids in our classrooms right now who are going to be in, involved in this in a few years to come? But as I say, at the moment, Mike, there will be people stabbed to death today. We have to make immediate decisions about something to stem the flow, at yeah. the very least stem the flow. Sure. And then we can start talking about long-term, 10-year, whatever all the rest of it is. Mm. I mean, you've been... Immediate- I was going to say, Barry, you've been campaigning uh, against knife crime since the sad death of, of, of your own son back in uh, 2008, 11 years ago. I mean, have you seen a change in attitude for the worse? I think in the, in the early days, there was a, a lot more heavy policing. There was Operation Blunt, Operation Blunt 2, um, ending youth gangs and violence, one thing after another, and it did have an impact. Mm. But now it's getting worse. And I would, I would say, Mike, it is much worse than when my son was killed. Um, and, and it just doesn't seem to be curtailing at all. So yes, it's getting worse. It's not going to get. It's not going to get better by itself. Something has to be done. Um, and I want my. I know there's this offensive weapons bill coming out, and that's going to sort of pull back the how you can buy a knife. But as you've just said, this is it's ridiculous to to think that by preventing young people from buying a knife, that's going to solve the problem. Yeah, it really isn't. To change that mentality. It's ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, my, my, what I'm interested in, and I'm going to hear from some of our callers coming up shortly, is how do you get the mindset of a kid to change? Because you know, I've got teenage boys, and I don't want them getting mixed up in any of this. But I'm hoping uh, that they already have the view in their head that it would be very wrong to pick up a knife and thrust it into somebody else's uh, body. Absolutely. And that goes for 99.9% of most young people. Yeah. You know, they're frying themselves, they're frying to go out of the house. How can you how can you worry about sitting in a park of all places? Yeah. So they are frying. So this is a tiny minority. So therefore they can be identified surely. And then can we do more? And it's not just about punishment. It's about if there's something going on in some young person's life, what can we do for you as a society? And if they choose to ignore that, then perhaps we then have to just rely on the law. Um, But it's a change of mindset from the rest of us as well. Um, I'm obviously feeling quite passionate about this. You're feeling quite passionate about it. But let's sit down and say, okay, this is what's going on. What are we prepared to do Mm. as individuals? What are we prepared to put up with? And also, we're also now kind of almost normalising, because I've heard people say this to me many times on the radio, that a lot of young men, young teenage men now, are carrying knives as a a method of self-defence, which has got to be discouraged. Absolutely. But I think, again, we can get complacent. 
We said, well, and perhaps it's drug-related, et cetera, et cetera. But now you've just had uh, a young girl um, stabbed. And suddenly that, surely that just points the finger that this is not somebody else's problem. Mm. This is not just one particular group. Yes, we need to be angry. You know, if we can't be angry for some of the young people who are suffering on this because there's drug involvement, then be angry for the other ones. Be angry this is happening yeah. in parks, in shopping areas. Be angry is absolutely the right attitude, I think. Barry, thanks very much indeed. Uh, Barry Mizzen, MBE, anti-knife crime campaigner, a man who knows an awful lot about what he's talking about because his own son uh, was stabbed to death in Lee in South London uh, 11 years ago at the age of 16. You've got to get angry. You've got to do something. You've got to come up with some ideas. We have to fix this problem, and it may not be possible to fix it simply with the police and simply with the politicians. It is the community that needs to fix it somehow. I don't know how. I need your help. 034. 499-1000. This is Talk Radio. We'll take your calls next. More gun talk from a water pistol from the farmer of fury. The independent republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. You know what to do. 0344 499 1000. Coming up in the next hour, we will be talking uh, about the Brexit bribe, which is effectively uh, Theresa May handing out about £1.6 billion uh, to a bunch of uh, what's called forgotten towns, struggling towns up and down the nation. Just so happens that most of them are in Labour constituencies because she's hoping that it will make those Labour MPs actually vote for her deal. But we'll get to that in a moment because far more importantly at the moment, we're talking about the knife crime epidemic, the, the national crisis as it's being called uh, by a former police chief. Let's go back to the calls. Uh, we'll get to Robert in a moment. First, Laura uh, is in London. Hi, Laura. Yeah, hi, good morning. Good Thanks morning. for taking my call. Not at um, all. I have a couple of uh, things to say here. Okay. I, I heard JW from Evesham, yeah. and he gave um, a pretty uh, balanced, um, uh, I'd say accurate view, mm. um, that the police, uh, their, their reasoning for not uh, arresting the children are taking them in, even despite knowing that it's the same group of children doing it again and again, even Mm. to the extent of someone uh, being thrown off their motorbike and being taken to hospital. He said that they, the police had given the excuse, we don't want to criminalise these children. Now, now JW never said the children were black. Did he? Did I? Did I fail no, to him? No, he did not. They were black, and in black fact, families. by by association, um, I, I, I didn't take them to be black or white, but I, I would imagine in a place like Evesham, they might be white. Exactly. Bingo. Thank you. Nail on the head there. But Daniel phones up, and from the word go to the end, he's on and on about black families, black flam- families with, with no parents. We need to talk about culture. We need to talk about this, that, and the other. If the, if the police are not willing to criminalise the white children, but they are willing to criminalise the black children, Daniel, if you're still listening. That's why those statistics you quote are higher for the black individuals than the white. And and, and so, so he should wrap his head around that one. Another thing I'd like to say is that I grew up decades ago, not that you'd know it from my voice, um, <laughs> but I did. And I grew up outside London in a white-based area. Okay, rural, white. I was the only non-white in the school that I went to. And it was the white kids 
with the white families, the white parents, the mother and father still at home, who were chasing me, bullying me and slapping me. Okay, and nothing was done about them. Mm. Listen, Laura, I, I, like you, know plenty of areas of this country where there are problem families. They tend to coagulate in the same places. Many of them are white families. Uh, Many of them are not black families. But there is also, no doubt, a drug culture problem in this country, which is led by Eastern European men, uh, which is uh, serviced by a lot of young black men who are the delivery uh, boys for some of this stuff. And there's no doubt that there is a a culture in some of our inner cities uh, of, of black gangs who are going around stabbing each other. There's no doubt about that, but it doesn't mean that's the, the root of all evil. You know what I mean? Well, can we use the same the same reasoning for outside in the countryside, the white kids bullying, sure. bullying uh, other kids? And and I, I have to say, I was raised by one parent, the, mm. other, the, the, the other parent being overseas. But anyway, um, my parent never raised us to punch and slap people on the way home. Mm. It was the white kids that were doing sure. it. And those white kids kids weren't on drugs not as far as i could tell no exactly i mean it does come down i think in the end laura to your upbringing and how and how you treat other people i mean like i said what i think we need to somehow get our heads around is why young men uh, of whatever color they are are willing to plunge a knife into somebody else we need to stop them from thinking that's okay this happened to me by girls as well well young girls young men young people gangs of girls spiteful, trying to show who was kingpin and the leader of the pack. And it happened back then decades ago. It happens still now. It's not um, uh, just black kids, Daniel. It's people of any, you know. Anyway, and another thing I'd like to ask, um, actually, Mike, is that when you play your tracks, because some of them are very good, Mm. it winds me up that you don't mention... Uh, the name of the track, Does it? the name of the artist, yeah. Well, I'm sorry, I'll, yeah, I'll have to ask my producers about that because it's it's all their choices, you see, and I don't want to turn it into a music show where no, I'm going to no, go, no, you know, well, that was one by Coldplay, you know what I mean? It would sound no, a bit weird. Some, some of the tracks are great. I don't know, was that the Christian Brothers or someone else? I don't know. The last one I'm told, yes, was the Christian Brothers. Yeah, oh, well, well done. It's, well it's, done. Well, thank you very much. I see, I didn't know that. Well, I yeah, I'm yeah, no, they're great. But um Talk Talk, the lead singer writer yeah. died last week he did. and I'd I'd love for some okay. tracks of his to be played. He was an, an amazing, amazing He was. Writer. In fact we did do some of that last week. So yeah. so but we'll do some more, Laura. Listen, thanks a lot for your call. You make a lot of sense and we always like to hear sense on this show because an awful lot of sense is out there. Uh, it just needs to filter through to the people that make the rules and the people who actually are those in charge of running our society. Robert is in Dulwich. Hello, Robert. Hi, Mike. Um, well, how depressing. Uh, seven or eight years ago, I actually spoke to Nick Clegg when he was voting in the Commons. Do you remember they were going to have the one fight when you get a custodial if you're carrying a knife? I do, but um, your line is really bad, Robert. Anything you could do to make it slightly better? Is that better? No, I'll tell you what. Stay, stay, stay on the line. We'll get your line improved. We're going to go to Kevin in Canterbury. Kevin, hi. Oh, hello there, are you? You're very well indeed. What do you want to tell us? Uh, well, uh, just briefly, I respond to Laura. Yeah. Um, I'm white. I was bullied. I was fired and shot seven times in the back with a pellet gun, and guess what? Mm. That was a white bloke. Mm. But never mind, I've not come on the radio for that. Okay. Um, the thing is, is that um, the, the, the point I want to make here is the this, this um, knife gang culture yeah. in London, which I lived in London for about three or four years. 
And um, <clears throat> probably I've never seen anything like that. But I do believe that the point I want to make is that the the, um, the police, I think personally, my own point of view is their hands are tied. And um, they're too frightened um, to go in heavy-handed right. because they'll get blamed for uh, racism, anti-black. And to be perfectly honest, um, if more blacks are carrying knives and whites, I personally don't care whether they stop 20% of blacks and 90% whites, as long as the knives are off the off Well, the I think the point is, is that we've seen them in, 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 increasing stop and search in Birmingham because they had a problem up there. Nobody seems to have been uh, hysterical about that. I don't know whether it's uh, resulted in them stopping any more violent crime. But we also need to look beyond the actual stopping and searching, Kevin, don't we? We need to look at the people who are telling these kids it's OK yeah. to stab each other. Well, well, the other thing is, I think, linked to that, I think it's, sort of, it's a lot of drugs involved. And I think, looking at it from the outside, it seems to be now more like a honour killing, where yeah. um, you get higher in the gang if you go out and kill indiscriminately anybody. And well, it, I'm not it, sure that's going to turn out to be the case because it looks as though certainly the police are now saying uh, the accidental killing may well be the case in uh, in Romford. Um, so, I mean, I'd be I'd, like you, I'd be very concerned if it was going to be people, ordinary, innocent people just getting stabbed at random. That would be horrendous. Right. The only other thing I'd like to say is is that there are organisations um, that they, um, I can't understand. I just cannot understand and get my head around why they can't catch these people. The, the you've got Cobra, you've got other organisations. They can monitor, they mm-hmm. can catch terrorists, they can um, do surveillance, they can do lots of things, and eventually... Yeah, they but do they can't bring, do all of it, Kevin, can they? That's the thing. They can't do all of it, but my main point is is that um, they, they could do a lot more, but I think it's the hierarchy in the Metropolitan Police mm. that are frightened to give the powers. Yeah. No, I think, I think, Kevin, you're absolutely right. But I think now the time has come for that to be changed. And I think political will will now bring that about, I hope. If not, the will of the people should bring it about. Kevin, we've got to run. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. 
The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, in most countries, if you said that the government was about to bribe you to get votes in their direction, you'd call it some kind of banana republic, wouldn't you? And even in the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, we wouldn't get down to that sort of nonsense. We would not bribe people to vote in a particular direction. But Theresa May seems to be making a bit of a habit of it. Let's talk to Ruth Smith, Labour MP for Stoke-on-Trent North, and see what she makes of it all. Ruth, a very good morning to you. Morning. Uh, first of all, my real question, I suppose, should be, where's this money coming from? Well, I think that's a question for the Prime Minister rather than for me. <laughs> well, where do you think uh, it's coming from? Well, I think, you know, we've seen um, lots of statistics this year that the government's taken more in tax revenue than it was expecting in January. So um, if that's some of, you know, if this amount of money, some of that, then um, that's interesting. But also, let's be honest about how much money this really is. It's 1.6 billion over four years. That's tiny, tiny amounts of money when you're talking about a government budget the size of what we've got. But isn't it a bit cynical uh, to set up something called the Stronger Towns Fund, which by coincidence seems to target towns in leave constituencies that are represented by Labour MPs? Well, I think, yeah, I think that we've got to be clear about what I thought the Prime Minister was starting to have a conversation about, and that was about left-behind communities and a Brexit dividend. They're the people that voted for Brexit, and yet we've never had a conversation about why. Mm. And I hoped that this was the first conversation, you know, that this was a genuine conversation about that, right. about how we rebalance the economy nationally, how we invest in some of the areas that have been savaged by the austerity cuts, which mine have been decimated. But this, um, the, the announcement today, it's less money for the whole of the West Midlands um, than has been slashed from my budget since 2010 mm. for my constituents. So it's a pathetic amount of money. And what about the uh, the conversations that you're having with your constituents back in uh, in, in, in Stoke North, Stoke-on-Trent North? I mean, what are they saying about the Brexit dividend? What are they saying about everything? Well, my constituents, I mean, I door knock every week, so I speak to my constituents a lot. Um, they're quite clear. They don't understand why we haven't left yet. They don't understand um, why they're not being listened to. And I'm trying and I'm doing everything I can to, um, to honour their um, respect and honour their vote. Um, but in terms of a dividend, they think they've been screwed by a Tory government. So now it's about, you know, my only job is to protect them and is to get additional investment for them. I make no apologies for demanding more money from the government for them. Um, but no, it, in many ways, that's what you should be doing. But I'm wondering, more about, I'm wondering more about what they're saying about Brexit, really, to be honest. Oh, so for Brexit, they, yeah, they don't understand why we haven't left yet. And my, uh, my anger with the government is that they're making it sound like no deal is completely and utterly acceptable and it won't have any consequences, whereas it will have consequences. We need a deal. Well, some people think much... it will, don't they? Oh, well, I think it will. Yeah. So I think, you know, I genuinely think it will. Um, I'm sure that we can overcome every challenge put in front of us. I just don't see why we need to make the challenges harder than they need to be. Mm. So, um, well, I think MPs have done that to a large extent, and some people disagree with me about that, but an awful lot of ordinary people agree with me that the parliamentary process is responsible for causing this entire sort of mess. Well, I think, you know, the, uh, I think the, rea- the fact is that we haven't seen that most MPs, especially as an opposition MP, um, I still haven't seen a single change to the withdrawal deal than the one that the Prime Minister put in front of us that I voted against several months ago, and yet I'm one of the people that keep saying, I want to vote for a deal. Yeah, right. The, the way in which the Prime Minister's... Well, they keep, cancelling the, they keep cancelling the votes, don't they? Because, I mean, they think they're not yeah. going to win them, which is also a very odd way to behave. It's an extraordinary way to... I mean, she's mismanaged this from the beginning to the end, and she even needs to keep tacking right and talking to only the ERG and then losing her own MPs in the process... 
or she needs to start talking to Parliament as a whole to deliver a deal. And mm. I think she needs to do the latter. It's in the national interest. Brexit should never have been about party political interest. It should always have been about the national interest. It should have been. But then presumably, I don't know which way you would have voted in the referendum. I've got a question for you from a constituent here uh, saying, which I think I already know the answer to. Uh, please ask Ruth from, Le- from Les if she's going to respect a 72% vote leave constituency and vote against extending Article 50 and keeping no deal on the table. I assume you're not going to do that. Uh, I won't vote for an extension to Article 50 unless the Prime Minister comes and says that she desperately needs it. And if it is, if she wants an extension, then it would have to be time limited. I wouldn't want anything longer than a couple of months. Yeah. I'm prepared to I think that's the way it's going to go, isn't it? Yeah, and I think being reasonable, we're talking about how you know a forty a divorce after forty years, and about our future relationship. Sometimes things take slightly longer. So if it takes another couple of months to ensure that our industry is protected, I'll do that. But in terms of um, delaying the process, in terms of not delivering Brexit, I have promised on every platform. Um, since the referendum and during the 2017 election and post that I will deliver Brexit for my constituents. I just want to deliver a Brexit that I think works best for them. And will it help you to vote for her deal if the deal is one you would you, you would like the sound of but it's not quite there? Will it help if this money comes to your constituents? Oh, look, that, um, the money should be coming separate. to my constituents. It's completely separate. The money should be coming to my constituents anyway. And But this is not just a one-off vote. The meaningful vote that she's putting in front of us is not a one-off. We've got a vote for... We've got the withdrawal um, bill to get through and then the political agreement. This I hate to ruin it everyone's day on a Monday morning, but we've got... I've already done that, ...years and years of Brexit. I mean, this isn't going away, sorry. No, but I think that's normal, and I think most people actually will understand that. Once What they want to see is a start to, to the process. I don't think anyone in their right mind, apart from a few absolutely hysterical Remainers, think that, you know, as soon as we leave the European Union, the world is going to change. The world is not going to change, first of all, because you quite rightly say, we're going to be talking about this for quite a long time to come. Yeah. There's an awful lot of complicated deals that have to be sorted out, negotiated, and then put into practice. And that's the thing, and that's another reason why I don't want no deal, because those are going to take some time. Mm. And we saw the chaos over the weekend of everything that Chris Grayling touches is costing us a fortune, and it is ensuring that we're not getting ready for no deal at all. So the government haven't done the preparations for no deal. So even if it is that we end up, you know, God forbid in my view, but even if we do end up leaving with no deal, we still need an extra few months to make sure we've got the preparations in place because the government have been so ill-equipped. So 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 what's your position on on sort of the Labour party position because i'm a bit confused as to what the labor party position is to be honest uh so i'm completely opposed to a second referendum okay. i've said so publicly i think that it was um i think it betrays democracy but also the country is extraordinarily divided at the moment more so than in my lifetime i think and the uh, and so i don't the labor party, we'll come back to that in a minute that's all separate issue um <laughs> but neither is um but another referendum being even more divided isn't going to help anybody. And what what happens if it's fifty two forty eight the other way? What does that mean? What we're going to go for a third? Well, one? exactly. I mean, the fact that we've got to this point in time because of a referendum, people want to do it again, seems to me to be complete madness. Yeah, I'm not sure I'm ever voting for another referendum on any issue ever again. No, by the way, though, no, it's not a good idea. It really is no. not a good idea. And I mean, there are many ways of of explaining why it's not a good idea. But having done it, you know, the trouble is we're stuck with it now, aren't we? Yeah. And I mean, people. we are stuck with it and we've got to deliver on it. And I mean, I have people vote in my constituency who have never voted in a general election or, or not for a generation. And they've sort of, they've trusted us. They've given us clear instruction. And it's now up to me to prove that 
I was worth, you know, I, I deserve their trust, so mm. I need to deliver for them. Yes. Not everyone's going to be happy with me, and I may end up in a position where everyone's angry with me because I don't, I don't think no deal is a good idea. But I'll do everything I can to deliver for my constituents. That's my only. The priority. bottom line, I think, Ruth, is all you can do within reason is to try and carry out the will of your constituents and still balance that with your own particular view. Um, do it in a way which which um, is never going to please all the people, but but maybe pleases most of the people. And I mean, that's the trouble for me. I mean, a lot of what people are trying to do in Parliament is get a deal which everybody's happy with. It's never going to happen. There is never going to be a deal that everybody's happy with. You're absolutely right. I mean, that's one of, I wrote um, an article uh, a few months ago which said what should have happened was um, Keir Starmer and David Davis should have gone together to negotiate the deal. This yeah. should never have been about party politics. We should be... It should have been... Uh, it should have been above party politics. And what you and I would be talking about today was what was going to happen in the transition deal and how did we think the political parties were faring for the 2020 general election? Because no. we'd never have had a snap one either. Mm. Now, before I let you go, I have to ask you, are you team Tom Watson or team Jezza Corbyn? I'm team Tom Watson. But I mean, you? I'm team Labour, but I'm also Tom Watson's PPS, so I'd get slapped from my boss if I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> is he going to be the next really. leader and how soon is he going to take over? It's not about leadership. This is about... Well, insurance. it is, really. I mean, we've had... Well, it's about... Actually, it is about leadership. And we've had go. a very miserable couple of weeks in the Labour Party. We've had a difficult and challenging, and I definitely have personally, um, couple of years in the Labour mm. Party. On the issue of anti-Semitism, which is um, one of the things that is tearing my party apart unbelievably, yeah. uh, Tom's shown genuine leadership. And I've been asking... I'm, I'm Deputy Chair of the Parliamentary Labour Party, I've been asking for the leadership to show real leadership on the issue um, for three years, and the only one that has is Tom. But this is about ensuring that the traditions of the Labour Party, the broad church we've always been, the social democratic aspect of the party that exists is still in place. And um, Tom and I used to work together, mm. so I, you know, I, Tom and I have a very similar political outlook, and I'm delighted that he is um, taking on this mantle. Yeah, well, next time you talk to him, tell him you can unblock me on Twitter if he likes, and then we can have a proper conversation again. <laughs> All right. Thank you very okay. much indeed. Ruth Smead, the Labour MP uh, for Stoke-on-Trent North, very much in the camp of Tom Watson. You'd have to say, uh, you would really not take any money uh, or any bets on him not being the next leader of the Labour Party, possibly before the end of this year. I see a big coup coming uh, sometime during Labour Party conference. We shall see. 0344 499 1000. Lots and lots of you uh, want to get on today, and lots and lots of you will get on. We're going to talk about knife crime. We're going to talk about uh, this bribe uh, that Theresa May is offering, although Ruth Smith says it's not a bribe. Uh, she will get uh, what she wants for her constituents, regardless of whether the money comes, and she hopes the money does come because she wants it for Stoke North. John says, MG, Ruth is my MP, and I can tell you the majority of Leavers up here are furious with Labour's complete turnaround ready the second referendum. We just want to leave. Well, John, she's just said... She is not in any way, shape or form going to go for a second referendum. So I think that's not going to happen. I don't think it's got enough votes in Parliament even there to get uh, that sort of organised. So uh, I think you're safe on that front. But she does not want to leave with no deal. Maybe you need to have a word with her. I don't think there could be anyone on the planet that doesn't know that song and doesn't love that song. Let's talk to Mick Moore, rock biographer uh, and journalist. Mick, uh, uh, good afternoon to you. Sad news and very sort of shocking news, really. Incredibly shocking. Um, uh, I mean, the guy was 49 years old, appeared to be 
um, enjoying life to the full. Prodigy is still a hugely successful band in this country and around the world. Mm. Uh, no one knows quite what's happened. Um, so uh, we will find out, no doubt, over the coming days. But in the meantime, I mean, we've lost a really unique performer. Um, everybody will recall that track you just played and particularly the video that went with it. It became one of those sort of defining images um, of that period in the mid-90s. I think the, the, the irony being, of course, I remember when they showed that on um, television and there were complaints from viewers saying their children had been frightened or, <laughs> you know, little old ladies had collapsed in the street, you mm. know. But in fact, when I met Keith Flint very early on, before he was a fire starter, um, in that very kind of late 80s, early 90s scene that eventually produced people like the Chemical Brothers and Fat Boy Slim, yeah. the rave scene, um, he was this incredibly nice, easygoing, chilled, as we would say yeah. now, uh, guy. The Firestarter was a fantastic creation, but in no way reflected um, uh, what was actually a very sweet guy. Right. It's often the way, isn't it, Mick? And I'm pretty sure I saw posters only a few months back advertising a couple of big shows they did at Alexandra Palace, and, and presumably they're also touring. Absolutely. I mean, every every single album they've released, including... Um, uh, their most recent uh, uh, album last year, No Tourists, went to number one. They had, uh, in this country, they had multiple hit singles. The album that Firestarter came from was a number one record literally all over the world, including America. But uh, uh, like all these, um, what are now regarded as classic groups, the Prodigy were brilliant live. You know, mm. unlike a, a lot of the rave scene where you get uh, a DJ's more or less hiding behind a desk wearing headphones. Yeah. Keith and his fellow dancers in the Prodigy really knew how to put on a show. The Prodigy were very much, if you like, a rock band. They would do live festivals. They were incredible, uh, incredibly popular in Australia, America, all over Europe. If you, you didn't have to be um, a rave purist to mm. enjoy the Prodigy, and you certainly didn't have to be a rock fan to enjoy them. But if you really liked a fantastic night out with people that really you know, pushed it to the limit, uh, they were the guys. And Keith was very much the, the, the front man of that. Incredible energy. Yeah. Um, I'm told he was originally a dancer with the band, which is kind of what those rave rock bands did, didn't they? They always had somebody dancing around on stage, which was why he was so great to watch. Well, absolutely. I mean, they, to be honest, the Prodigy took it to a whole other level. I mean, um, Liam Howlett was the original DJ that, that was making the music. Mm. He met uh, Keith uh, in those late 80s days on the club scene. And uh, Keith basically suggested that him and his friend Leroy Thornhill should come along and just dance to this music, which sounds so simple. But mm. if, you, if you saw them on stage, I mean, they were incredible dancers. And then as time went by... Uh, Maxim and other people came along and joined in the fun and it wasn't until bizarrely um, Firestarter which came from the band's third album Fat of the Land that Keith Flynn ever contributed a vocal he was mm. in all the early videos for their earlier hit singles he was on in all their shows he was very much a member of the band but Firestarter was the first track he ever actually did vocals for so that's extraordinary. And when you think that he then went on to to, uh, to sing all the follow-up singles mm. that also were huge hits like Breathe and 
uh, smack my bit sharp and so on and so forth. Incredible. The guy was just straight out of the box, an enormous talent, uh, and no one like him, really no one no. else like him. And you'd have to say those those songs that you've mentioned there are the best known songs for people who are not massive fans of the band themselves. I mean, the people who just, you know, listen to music and know the prodigy for those three songs. Yeah, yeah. Um, th- but there were, I mean, literally starting from their first single, Charlie, in 1991, which was number three, everybody in the plays number two from the same year, uh, right up till Warriors Dance, which was top ten, um, in the late 2000s. I mean, the trouble is these days, no one really has what's known as a hit single anymore. Um, you know, the 1975, who just wowed us at the Brits, have never had a hit single in the charts, but yeah. they've had several number one albums. So the Prodigy uh, uh, really were almost like the last of their breed. Fabulous in the studio, really amazing live, lots of hits, lots of great albums. They really were the full package. Yeah, they really were, and he will be very sadly missed. Mick, thanks very much indeed. Mick Wall, a rock biographer and journalist there, talking about the very sudden and, and shocking death, really, of Keith Flint at the age of just 49. Everybody knows Firestarter, of course. Everybody has seen that video. Then there's any part of the world that it hasn't been in uh, and it hasn't had an influence on, on people. But as Mick says there, and a lot of people also saying in various Twitter tweets going out and various other tributes being, uh, being put out there uh, for us to read, he was a lovely guy. He was a very gentle character. Uh, the Chemical Brothers say he was very much responsible for helping them in their careers. And uh, just an all-round terrific character from the music business. Another one uh, that we won't hear singing live ever again, unfortunately. Uh, lots more to come, though, uh, on the show. And I'm sure Matthew Wright will be giving uh, a tribute to uh, to Keith Flint as well. This is Talk Radio. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.